Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. I want to start by doing our favorite thing in this group, which is by going backwards, because there's one one piece of the Rashi commentary in verse 21 that I wanted to add something to that I forgot to last week. So to remind us, we are um, chapter 2, verse 21 of the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot, and um, um, verse 21. Vayoel Moshe la shevet etaish. This very hard to translate verb. Moshe yoeled um, to sit with the man. We translated he agreed to. We had translated it as he um, he made a commitment to. Vaitena tzipora vitola Moshe, and he gave tzipora his daughter to Moshe as a wife. Two things I wanted to say about that I forgot last week. One, as many of you know. For nine years, I served a community in upstate New York called Monroe, in Monroe. One of the cities, one of the villages within the town of Monroe is the village of Kiryas Joel, Satmer Hasidim, who moved up to the, um, uh, to the kind of the suburbs when their Rebbe said, come in the late 70s, like that's the difference between being a Hasidic Rebbe and a conservative rabbi. A Hasidic Rebbe says, we're leaving Williamsburg and we're coming to upstate New York and they came. If I said to you, we're leaving LA and we're moving to Montana, you would say, have a good life. Um, but they all, Matt, you'd come? Oh, okay, Matt's coming. Um, but uh, they all came and, they, and, and uh, it, it's, it's a complicated, fascinating, troubling situation up there. But why is it called Kiryas Joel? Because the Rebbe was Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum. So Joel Yoel, Kiryas Joel, the city of Joel. Um, and uh, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum's most important work, the work that the Hasidic, the Satmar Hasidim read as their own Bible, it, it is the Bible, is the, ver, is the book, Vayoel Moshe. You know, rabbis who write commentaries often try to find phrases from the Bible that are puns on their name that serve as the name of their book. So he is, and, and then on a second move, people are known by the name of their book. So sometimes people refer to Rabbi, uh, um, uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, as the Shulchan Aruch. So sometimes people refer to Joel Teitelbaum, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, as the Vayoel Moshe. And Moshe agreed, right? So if you're a Satmar Rebbe, those two words that we've been trying to figure out for three weeks are the two most important words of the Torah, because those are the words that are, are titling the commentary to the Torah that serves as your primary Bible, even before the Bible itself. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Next thing I wanted to say um, is the the last little piece that Rashi um, added at the end of his commentary. First, he gives us what he thinks it really means, kamashma'o, that it means he agreed to, and he gives us several different verses from the Bible where that was the case. And then he adds one little piece, umidrasho, and a midrashic, creative, stretchy way of reading this is um, lashon Allah, the language of Allah, an oath, a promise. And we played around with that. Maybe what got him Sipora was the fact that he agreed. He made a commitment that he wasn't just going to sit down for lunch with uh, Yitro, but he was going to join the tribe. He was going to join forces with, join an, in an alliance with Yitro. Uh, and what I neglected to share with you, there's a verse that bears that out as well. Because normally we think of Allah, the noun, as being um, a word for oath, but it's not common at all that that, that is used in verb form. So I wanted to show you this verse that Rashi doesn't bring, but the super commentaries on Rashi do bring. Uh, hold on. Okay. So we are in the first book of Samuel, chapter 14. Context for this particular meaning doesn't matter. Uh, there's, been, there's, there's recently been a victory, and God brought the victory to, to Israel. Right? That's verse 23. The Ish Yisrael... Um, the, the men of Israel, nigash bayom hahu, interesting uh, uh, translation of the word nigash here, usually means to come close, but here it's being understood in contextually as they came close in distress. Vayoel Shaul et ha'am, same exact verb, same written, the, uh, I think it's written and even pointed the exact same way as our verse. And Saul yoeled the people. He yoeled them. What does it mean? 
Lamor saying, Arur ha'ish asher yochalechem. Interesting connection here because our verse also has the, the, the words right before Vayo el Moshe and our verse. The previous verse is Vayo halachem. So we have a, a connection between a Yoel verb and the consumption of bread. Shaul says, Cursed be the person who will eat bread ad ha'erev until nighttime. Venikamti me oivai. I'm going to take revenge on my enemies. I mean, cursed be the person who says that. And nobody ate food all day. The way Vayoel Shaul is understood right here is he, 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 he made the people take an oath, right? For Saul had laid an oath upon the truths, um, like the he feel of the word Allah. He oathed them. He, he um, I don't know what the good English word is. He adjured them, right? He brought them into a legal um, status to make them commit to not take vengeance. So there is a verse that Rashi could have brought to support his Midrash. It's interesting to me methodologically that Rashi brings verses to support his understanding of pshat. It means to agree. He gives us a little bit of a hint that there's a lovely Midrash in Shimon Rabbah that says you can also read this as oath. That Midrashic reading has a verse which supports it, but Rashi doesn't bring it because he doesn't really want us to spend too much time thinking that that's the way to read the verse. And I find that to be an interesting methodological choice. Uh, so let's pause there. See if any comments on that. Uh, Larry, Vakasha, Larry, Diane. This is completely a digression, but in your in the Sfaria, it has nigas and not nigash. You read it nigash. I'm just wondering. It's curious. Um, you're right. I'm wrong. It is nigas, and that's why it it means what it means. Because had it been nigash, it couldn't mean distress. It has to do with coming close and gathering. But you're right, it's nigas. Even that root, I'm not so familiar with. Maybe Vered can tell us. I would think that the, the root of nigas is something gimel sin. Because usually when there's a nun in that form, the nun has been added in and it's not part of the shoresh. Vered, do you know what, what shoresh we're talking about here? Is Vered with us? No, she's not here yet. No, she's not. Where's Vered when you need her? What, what, how, how dare she not be here? We need to ask her a question on a verb. Um, Leonard, if you want to help us find the root of nigas, even though it's totally um, uh, parenthetical to our point here, that would be interesting. I love her learning new Hebrew roots. Marshall, Babakasha. The, uh, there's a nun gimel sin. Okay. And that means to press, drive, or oppress. Ah, lo yigos. Right. We have that in, in, the, in, in uh, lo yigos at, um, at, at achicha, at ha'ani, right, to, to oppress. Terrific. Um, Marshall? Isn't the word no gates also a taskmaster? Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not on my game today. That's the word that the that we that we will have later on in the book of Shmot when uh, we're talking about the taskmasters laying even more of a hard challenge upon the Israelites to produce their own um, uh, their own um, straw for the bricks. Good. No gsim. Very good. Thank you. Thank you both. That is indeed the root. And if it's no and right, if it's no gsim. Then the nun is part of the root, so it's nun gimelsin to oppress. And in the future, sometimes it's lo yigos. Very good. Okay, anything else on these verses before we go to verse 22, which I think is where we are? No? Okay. Whom have I not asked to read in a while? Uh, Joel, have I asked you to read recently? You want to read? I have asked you to read. Anybody want to read? Who wants to read? I mean, I should do it that way. I don't want to make any decisions today. Who wants to read? Renee, Bavakasha. 22, correct? Yes. And it's a kamatz katan, so it's nochria. Even though it looks like it's an a, it's pronounced nochria. Okay, see if you can translate that. She gave birth to a son. And he named him uh, Gershom. I pause there for one second and look, look how the gender of the verbs switch. She did the giving birth, obviously, and he's doing the naming. Vatelet ben vayikra at Shemo. And the Torah doesn't say vatelet sipora ben and vayikra Moshe at Shemo. But obviously it's an implication unless we want to think that Yitro named him that. I don't think we do. That we have these unnamed feminine and masculine subjects of the verb. Uh, without without reminding us who the actual people are, go ahead. Uh, because uh, he said, "I've been a stranger in a foreign land." Right. 
So um, that's a, a phrase from the Torah that's uh, um, repeated often. I'm sorry that I'm all washed out right now. There's light is streaming through the window in my garage in such a way that makes me look like I'm in the middle of a hologram or something. So I'm sorry about that. I don't know what else to do about it. Uh, I'll try to readjust maybe the angle. Hold on. Go, okay. the go towards the light. Yes, not yet. Not don't yet. Go. Don't go towards the light. <laughs> um, uh, ah, so I've been a stranger in a strange land. It's, um, it's, um, isn't that one of the things that Tevya miss? attributes to uh abraham even though it was um uh, moses moses who said it in that scene with with all of the people around the the milk cart before shabbat so i've been a ger haiti i was a ger i was a stranger of course ger can also be translated as a sojourner i lived there right in the development of the hebrew language and this is fascinating you could spend you could write a dissertation on this how ger which in modern jewish parlance refers to um a convert right? And it also, also refers to a stranger. The verb lagur means to dwell, a sojourner, right? Because originally a convert was one who came to gar to live amongst the Jews and lived like the Jews, right? So does he here mean ger, stranger? Or does he here mean ger, I was living there? It's hard to know. But it, what's, what's easier to know is be'eros nochriah, in a foreign land. Nun kaf reish means foreign, unfamiliar uh, you remember we had this um, wonderful plan words in the Yosef reveal that he recognized them and they did not recognize him. And the root was Vayaker and is also Vayitnaker. He made himself unrecognizable to them. Vayitnaker. So he, he, he made himself seem foreign to them. Naker and Yaker. So uh, uh, Moshe is saying, I'm going to name this child based on my experience. My experience, not now. My experience is, well, that's another question. Is the Ger Hayiti Be'eretz Nochriah saying that there back in Egypt, I was a stranger in a foreign land or I dwelt in a foreign land? Or is he saying here in Midian, like is Hayiti kind of a past tense verb that's also referring to what's happening now? I have been meaning up until now, including now, and out of my place and where I ought to be is amongst the Israelites. That's also a question. Um, usually I let you throw out the questions. I started with some of the questions. Let's pause here. Thoughts or questions on the verse before we go into Rashi? Uh, Joel and then Norm. Well, I just want to point out that 21 and 22 are both have unattributed verbs. So it says, Vayol Moshe, Moshe is the subject, and all of a sudden it says Vayiten, with no subject. And in 22, Vateled, Ben, and then Vayikra, Vayikra, there's no subject to Vayikra. So both of them are, keep going back and forth with who is the subject. Right. Right. The, the, the context seems to be pretty clear. The Vayitenet Sipora Bitola Moshe has to be Ruel slash Yitro, because he gave his daughter to him. The Vatele Ben has to be Sipora. The only question you could possibly ask is Vayikrat Shamo, that he called his name uh, Gershom. It's, there's no reason to think it's anyone but Moshe, particularly since the description of the name seems to be about Moshe's experience. Um, but it, but it's, it's interesting that the Torah doesn't give us the subject here, because often it does. Um, Norm and Rachel and then Marshall and then Tova. I think that if Gershom refers to Egypt, it's, it's questionable whether that was strange for him or a strange land for him because it's the only place he really knew. And if he's referring to Midian, I think it means maybe until now, I was a stranger in a strange land in Midian when he first came, but now he's been settled. He's with a family. He has a wife. He has a child. That takes a little bit of time. He no longer feels like a stranger. He was a stranger, but now he's there. Nice, right? And, th- and that's, a, that's a very shoddy way of reading it, Norm, right? That he, he feels at home here. He's reminiscing that he was a stranger there, and he's naming the child born here based on his new reality, right? You could also play the opposite, right? That um, since, he's, since we know he's about to be called to go to his spiritual home, which is there to redeem them, he could say that this guy was born in exile, right? That it is Gershom who was born where I am currently a stranger. And we, it and- might mean that, but, you know, in our story, he's about to be called to go back, but we think he's still probably a young man. And by the time he goes back, he's at least pushing 80. Yes. So he may really have had a 
long time in Midian. Yeah. Before he goes um, back. The, the, that's a great addition, particularly as we, we talked about how to figure out how much time is transpiring. And if we, if we buy the Torah's internal numbers of 40 years of wandering and 120 at death, that means 80 at Exodus. And we, and we think ex, as expansively as we possibly can about how long the plagues took. Did they take a week, a year, or a decade? Again, just playing with these fanciful numbers. Um, then it doesn't seem like he was 70 when he when he grew up from the palace and, and smote the man outside the palace, that seemed to be soon after he grew up, there might be some sojourning with um, in Midian. And that might also explain two things. It might explain this, he agreed, he made an oath, and I'm going to live here for a while. He may, signed a contract. And it also is going to, I'm going to give away a little bit of the store now. It's also going to explain a little bit um, the first four words of the next verse, which I imagine we will get to today, and it was after all these many days. Right? How many days? Like something, well, something changed in Egypt that we ha- we're about to be told about, which means some, some time transpired. Uh, Marshall. Um, just going back to verse 17. So here, so the JPS commentary says, well, it's possible that it, you don't use the folk etymology of Gersham, but a reference to the Shoresh Gimel Reishin. Mm. Now, it doesn't exactly tie into the last part where he's saying, well, the reason I'm calling him this was that Kiyomar Ger Hayiti, the Eretz But it's just sort of interesting to see that that Shoresh Gimel Reishin shows up um, in, in in two places here, at least. Yeah, very good, very good. I, I, it's certainly alliterative, or as um, as uh, Alan will no doubt correct me, it's actually when it comes to consonants and not vowels, it's, it's considered assonance, not alliteration. But I forgot how to make it. The word assonant uh, is it assonant? Is that the adjective form of assonance? I'm not sure. I also want to point out before I call Antova, look at the uncleus for a second in terms of how to understand gear, right? Again, our Hebrew ears tend to think ger as stranger. But look how Uncle translates it in verse 22. Vilidat bar, she gave birth to a son, ukra yat shemei gershom, and he called his name gershom. Yat is et um, in Aramaic Hebrew. Are amar, because he said, dayar haveti. Dayar is unmistakably live and not stranger. It's, it's dira, right? The Aramaic dayar cannot be confused with a word that means stranger. It just means he lived. So Uncleus is translating Gerhaiti um, as I dwelled or I'm dwelling, not that I was a stranger in a strange land, which is how it's colloquially translated into English. Um, Tova. Um, addressing two things. One, the earlier point of Vaikra. Sorry, Tova, I muted you by accident in trying to meet right. someone else. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing on the point of Vaikra being an unattributed pronoun, which it is, but um, I don't think there's a strong case or strong confusion here because just the, the end of the previous verse refer, refers to Tsipora, Bito, Moshe, Vateled, who, Tsipora, and to whom, Vaikra. I mean, it, it, that doesn't that doesn't seem to me to be so ambiguous um but i want to come back to the question that you raised um the question the, uh, that it is moshe that gives the name and in it seems like the vast number of examples we have it's the mother that gives the name and i don't know if there's any significance to that uh but it's it's a question yeah good thank you for that tova um judy bavakasha Okay, forgive me, everyone. I'm perseverating on Yoel. <laughs> I'm totally perseverating. So, Joel, I'm wondering if you ever heard anything like this. The first time that Joel, my Joel, and I were in Israel, or they were here, one of my closest cousins said, Judy, Yoel, you understand what that means? Your Yoel is help from God. So, I was waiting and waiting here to hear something like that, and I didn't. And I can't help but think, yo, two letters of Hashem's name, 
Okay, El, another version of Hashem's name. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at the whole story, and it seems like Yad Hashem is hovering over all of this. That there's what we need to do in terms of Hitalech and to walk towards our destiny. But then the other piece of it is we're being guided and it's beyond us. And I know I'm taking the Midrashic road yet again, Rabbi. Um, but I want to hear you. Yeah, <laughs> I want to hear anybody's thoughts on. To me, there's the name of Hashem embedded in there. Listen, it it's it's lovely and fanciful. It's a beautiful what we call notrikun, right? You're splitting up a perfectly good a, a perfectly good verb to find component parts that are hidden within it. And and I've never seen that in that verb. And you're right. Because Chazal and certainly the, the Hasidic sources play all the time with where God's name is, is plucked into places and words that, that, are not, that are not found if you actually look at the root. And you're right. If you look at Vayoel, you do have the Yudvav, which is uh, one of the two-letter ways you can kind of play around with God's presence in a, in a, in a, in a word, Yudhei and Yudvav, and the Aleph Lam. So I'm not sure what to do with it, but I love that you found it. It's like you, 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 you saw it glimmering. You saw a little piece of gold glimmering in the brook and you decided to go down there and look at it. And it doesn't, we don't know what the nugget is worth, but we know that we're looking closely at it. It could be fool's gold, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that was my cousin, not me. I cannot take credit. Mm-hmm. All right, but thank you. That's what they saw in the name. Wonderful. Thank you, Judy. Um, okay. Uh, Rashi is quiet on this verse. Does anybody else want to add um, something before we move on to verse 23? Uh, yes, Diane Larry. Okay, so Diane says she also wants to say something. I was just going to comment on different translations um, and probably making something that doesn't really exist. So the JPS, I think, is saying, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And stranger and foreigner and foreign and strange, I guess, are kind of synonyms. They have different, for me, different connotations. Uh, right, so JPS is reading against Uncleus. JPS is saying that the ger in Gershom has to do with strangeness, not has to do with just dwelling. And, and Alter, Alter says, um, a sojourner have I been in a foreign land. So that would be like Uncleus, I think. Um, and uh, Arya Kaplan says, uh, the one that from, to my ear, I remember hearing more often, I have been a foreigner in a strange land. <laughs> right. And I don't know. Um, so I guess the, the, um, it, it gets down to um, Nohria. Yeah. What Nohria means, whether it really means foreign or strange, because at least in English, strange also has the, the, the meaning of being bizarre or different, unusual. This is like, this could be an electric company episode, fun with synonyms, right? And fun <laughs> with synonyms across languages. You're right. The word strange in English, whatever it means, it doesn't mean the exact same thing as czar and ger, and, and ger mean in Hebrew, right? Because strange has, um, um, I was once having a conversation with an Israeli who, trying to think where this went, he was using the English word um, bizarre, but he was translating from the Hebrew mishuneh. And the Hebrew mishuneh, which can be translated as bizarre, has a, has a different connotation in, for he, Hebrew-speaking Israelis than the word bizarre means in English. And it was a sensitive conversation. And some, something... Wait, something like freight fraught got introduced into the conversation because of the way he was translating Mishuneh. And it's very delicate, right? Strange has a certain negative connotation, and it's not at all clear that that's what Ger meant there. And the same way we talk about how to translate Tameh and Tahor, because if we translate Tameh as impure, whatever we're do- wherever we are in that conversation, we're not where the Torah was. The Torah did not think of it as an impurity in the sense of bad and evil, whereas impure in English can only mean faulty, right? Um, look how Everett Fox translates this. So it's, it's closer to um, how you, um, to Alter and to Uncleus. She gave birth to a son, great. 
and he called his name Gershom. And in the translation, not in the commentary, um, uh, Ira Fox puts a slash mark and says Gershom slash sojourner there. Sojourner truth. For he said, a sojourner have I become in a foreign land. So it's, it's, it's deliciously ambiguous. He turns the verb into have I become, which makes us think that he's talking about here in Midian. And he translates sojourner, not a stranger, but someone who's living here somewhere temporarily in a foreign land. And a foreign land, according to this reading, might be here in Midian. Now, Everfox doesn't often give commentary. Most of his commentary is the translation. But look what he says in his commentary. Sojourner, um, Gershom, related to the Hebrew ger, sojourner, or resident alien, the name more accurately reflects the sound of the verb geresh, Marshall, drive out, which is what Abravanel says, which plays its role in the Exodus stories and in Moshe's recent experience in the narrative. As my student Nancy Ginsburg once pointed out, this naming of sons to express feelings about exile has already occurred in a more personally positive context, with Yosef saying, a sojourner in a foreign land, in uh, Genesis chapter 41. The King James Version phrase, a stranger in a strange land, is stunning, but the Hebrew uses two different roots, ger and nachor, right? So um, since it's often translated as a stranger in a strange land, the only thing we can say about that English is that it's, it's, um, it's lazy and therefore inaccurate, because the Hebrew wanted to use two different verbs. And so don't put it into the same English phrase, even if it's going to be more memorable as a result of that. So Alter, though, also has a commentary on the Hebrew. Okay. And he says, in keeping with the biblical practice, the naming speech reflects folk etymology, breaking the name into Ger, Sojourner, and Sham, there. I don't think we said that, did we yet? Yeah, I think think that seems to be, I mean, I don't know if we said it out loud, but I think that seems to be the operating pshat, that, that the reason why the phrase Ger Haiti Be'eretz Nochriah is a translation or an interpretation of Ger Sham is because it's Ger and Sham, correct? Okay. But, but, but Abravanel's game and, and Marshall's game is that it's also related to Garesh. So, so I just wanted to say all of this points out the difficulty of, of translation and, and reading it in English as opposed to reading in Hebrew. Even, even Haiti, which seems like a really simple verb, because in Hebrew it is, but in English it, it takes many forms. I was, I had been. Right. Especially because, as we've discussed, tense in Hebrew and tense in biblical Hebrew, it's, it's apples to pickles. It's apples to horses to, 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 to English grammar. We just think that every language, you ever, ever think about the fact that, that people create language and language create people? Like if I only, if I grew up in a society that had one-tenth of the vocabulary words that we have in English. Does that mean that the people speaking that language have one-tenth of the emotions or one-tenth of the sophistication or nuance? Right? If you, if you don't have words to express something, does that mean you don't, you're not actually feeling it? Right? It's, it's a very interesting concept. So the whole concept of tense is different in languages and different over time. In English, the notion of a past tense, perfect tense, and a present tense, and a future tense is more... You can diagram it more. Remember in fourth grade English when you had to diagram sentences, right? It's, it's more easily diagrammed, we think, than the Hebrew, and certainly the biblical Hebrew, Haiti. In modern Hebrew, Haiti means I was, right? In biblical Hebrew, it doesn't only mean that. And even in modern Hebrew, you play with it. So um, in, in Hebrew slang, do you know what halachnu means? What does halachnu mean? We went. Do you know what halachnu means in slang? Let's go. Like we already went, meaning I'm now living in the moment where we have went, which means we have to go. So even in modern Hebrew, the, the basic notions of tense is played with. I'm trying to think of, and there must be English versions of that, where slang of the tense inverts the meaning of the tense. Um, um, in, in Ghanaian English, they say, I'm coming when they're leaving. It means I'm coming right back, but... But they look at you and they say, I'm coming. And then they turn around and they go. Oh, boy. Well, like in Bulgaria, where this means yes and this means no, which is, it, it's unbelievable how confounding that is. I was at it was my first morning in, in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, and the waitress came over and asked me if I, if I, I asked her, like, is there any coffee? And she said this and started to pour. 
and, and I, 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 was, I lost my mind. Um, but this will this will um, uh, be good for Larry. Speaking speaking of a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, which we were not speaking about, but now we are. The one I listened to this week, my goodness, it deals with overreach on the notion of scientific fraud in um, in, a, in a weird congressional committee that John Dingell ran in the 1980s, and the destruction of an amazing woman's career on her use of the word presently in a 300-page grant application. This is a woman who grew up in, I think, Germany. English was her eighth language, and she first learned English in a British context. And in the British context, the word presently means, I'm about to do it. I will be with you presently. In American English, presently means you've done it already. And they called her fraudulent because something she was about to do in her trial in her, in, in her test, she used the word presently, which means she was about to do it. But they said it was a fraudulent statement because she hadn't done it yet. And her career was destroyed over it. So these words matter. <laughs> um, Can I, go back? I want to yeah. go back to what you said about language and thought process. Because if, in fact, if, well, two things. One is Hebrew, because it's a root language, makes connections between words that we don't make in English and we don't think about. And, and therefore, it, it creates connotations on words that you wouldn't think of in English. Um, and the other thing is, if um, I understand, and we probably all know this, that the, the word snow in uh, Inuit has multiple, there are multiple versions of the word snow. And we look at snow and see snow, and they look at snow and see other things. Right. So it does affect thought process for sure. Um, I'm gonna, I see the other hands up and I want to get to all of them, but just to linger on this a little bit, I once heard a comedian talk about, in a beautiful way, about what a dog experiences when you let him or her out and, and, and what their notion of smelling your lawn is compared to ours. Like you, you, you can't put words to how different the dog's olfactory experiences versus ours. Like we go outside and we smell air. They go outside like air, air, poop, pee, tree, flower, ah, like that—that's their experience because that pore is so much more open, and that and those neurons are firing at a different level, and that's true with certain words, right? Certain words in different contexts. And what Susan wrote about her brother-in-law uh, writing multiple books on this, on this topic, um, her brother-in-law's one of her brother-in-law's closest friends was my uh, philosophy and great books professor at Columbia, he was still a graduate student at the time. He was only a graduate student and he's, he's by far the professor that the most impact on me and I'm still in touch with him. And he wrote his PhD at Columbia on the concept of concepts. Only philosophers can write a dissertation on the concept of concepts um, and the epistemology of words. But we're, we're all those philosophers in this very moment. We're just not writing dissertations on them. Okay, Elon, then Barbara, and then Leonard and Rebecca. So two things. First of all, the English equivalent equivalent of something like halachnu would be "I'm out of here," right? You're not yeah. out of here yet, but the implication is you're already kind of mentally out of here. The second thing is a, a little bit of a tangent, but it, 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 it's something that struck me when I read this uh, passage, which is Gershom. Not necessarily what the meaning of his name is, but the character. Up until today, if you had asked me. Tell me the name of Moses's eldest son. Honestly, I would have had no clue. Hmm. And I'm not a biblical expert, but I'm reasonably well-versed. It, it strikes me as interesting that the eldest son of our most prominent prophet is such a bit player in, in the entire story. And I was curious whether uh, the rabbis had any comment as to why that is. Yeah. Um, we could spend a lot of time on Gershom, particularly because the way in which that name exists in modern Jewish culture is not Gershom, but Gershon, right? If, I'm sure you've had Gersons and Gershons. Yeah, Gershom. Right? There are yes. very few people named Gershom with the name, even though that's that was kind of the original form of the name. Um, and you're right. I think they're. I think they're one of the things you get, Elon, from a close read is that even if one has been a shulgoer for sixty years. Right and 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 is, a, is paying attention as an observant literate Jew. There are just parts to this stuff that that don't get noticed until you notice them, which is a tautology. But yeah, I think you understand what I mean by that. Um, in terms of 
how much uh, attention is, is given to Gershom in the canon, right? Not that much. We're, we're going to spend a little bit of time with, with um, Moshe's boys when it comes to uh, their, their, uh, their circumcisions. And we're going to spend a little bit of time speaking about them kind of in abstentia when the family reunion that we would imagine happens doesn't happen. I've made reference to this before, and we'll, we'll get there. When, when Moshe comes back from Exodus and comes back with his family, um, the reunion with Yitro is discussed, but not the reunion with Sipora, Gershom, and Eliezer. So they are bit parted, right? There's a reason why the, the like the, 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 the average ed- educated and intelligent Jew, such as you, there's nothing average about you, but you know what I mean by that, doesn't know a whole lot about Gershom is that the Torah doesn't tell us a whole lot about Gershom. And you're right, he is a, he, he is a bit part. And there's something interesting about, the, the interesting sermons have been written about leadership in the fact that we know much more about Moshe's political connections than his family connections. One of my dear friends, Rabbi Charlie Savinor, uh, who was four years ahead of me in rabbinical school, I still remember his senior sermon at JTS and I, it was the case then. I still think, still think it's the case now that in your senior year of rabbinical school, you gave a senior sermon, right? That you invited your friends and family to, and everyone got a chance to hear, like, you know, your culminating talk. I still remember his senior sermon to this day. His father died that year. His father died around October of that year, and he gave the sermon at Parshat Yitro, which is January, and he talked about how pained he was at the Moshe he had been following and admiring and emulating his entire adult life as an aspiring Jewish leader came back from this political, religious leadership moment and hugged his father-in-law and spent and, 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 and talked about the case and ignored his sons and his wife. And he talked about this was a moment where he was learning negative leadership from Moshe. And as a son who wished he could hug his father, but he couldn't because he was gone, uh, wanted to uh, chastise Moshe for not focusing enough on his family. I still remember that to this very day. So we're gonna, we're gonna play with Gershom a little bit in that scene, but yes, you're right. It's not, he and they are not given a whole lot of attention. Uh, Barbara, Leonard, Rebecca, and then Barry. Good <clears throat> morning. Um, and that's Chaim in the notes on Gershom. Yes. Um, he picks up on what Larry said about Gershom and meeting a stranger in the foreign land. And it goes on, this echoes God's covenant with Abraham. Your offspring shall be strangers in a land, not theirs. The land is Egypt, not Midian. The prediction of slavery that was made to Abraham has been fulfilled. Liberation is now at hand. The birth of the child is symbolic of the regeneration of Israel. I think that, especially that last part that Gershom is to the the writer of this note, is is the regeneration of Israel is kind of interesting that now Moses is now being forecast to go on it to to liberation is the way I see it. Great, Barbara. Thank you for that. Sometimes the JPS uh, adds a lot of good color to to what these words mean. Thank you. And I wasn't looking at that in front of me. Uh, Leonard, Rebecca, Barry. Uh, Sforno disagrees. Uh, I happen to read the, uh, commentary for Sforno on the wrong verse, which actually helped a lot on this verse. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the, his comment on this verse is that he's, you know, he was a stranger in a land different from the one that where he was born, which definitely means Midian and not Egypt. Right. But the comment on the next verse is kind of interesting because, you know, even though we're reading this slowly, it seems like there hasn't been a lot of time transpiring since since uh, Moses left Egypt. But according to Sforno, from the day that Moses fled Egypt in his youth until Gershon was born, uh, and then uh, Moses uh, became a relative of Levan, the, the total time period that ex- that has uh, transpired over here was 80 years. So he was... Well, a- he was 80 years old. Not oh. that it was... I- that, that, that they're saying that he was just about 80 years old by the time he goes back. Not that he, that 80 years transpired, if I'm reading it correctly. Well, okay. That Moshe then was close to 80 years old. Oh, it's not Levon, it's Levin. Okay. All right. So why? what's the to and from here? Because it says from the time he fled Egypt until was born Gershom. What, what are they talking about? 
I, I think if, if, I, if I may, it's not a greatly, not a well-written sentence by Sforno. From the day that Moshe fled from Egypt, around his youth, until when Gershom was born, by then Moshe was 80 years old. So the beginning of the sentence seems to suggest that he's about to talk about the amount of years have transpired. But by the end of that first half of the sentence, he's talking about how Moshe, how old Moshe is in that moment. Okay. Never mind. Even so, um, what Sforno is weighing in on, that a lot of time has transpired in Midian. Um, Barry, hold your thought for one second, because I, I, was, I was about to point out that Sforno to you. Um, so I'm glad, every, I'm glad you, you brought our attention to it, Leonard. I also want you to look at Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra HaKatsar. So if you're in our book, it's the third one down on the left, two under Rashi. On Vayikra at, at Shemo, that he called his name, Ibn Ezra Ever the precise grammarian says, Moshe Kara'o, Moshe called his name, which tells us that our question about not knowing precisely who's the one who called his name is a good question, because Ibn Ezra says, the answer is what you think it is, but the fact that it's, it's ambiguous suggests that it's a good question. Maybe we might have thought that it would be Yitro or someone else. Um, and I think that's the only other thing um, that I wanted to point out amongst those um, oh, look at and then look look at Chizkuni, and then we'll hear from Barry. Chizkuni, French commentator, later than Rashi, bottom right on our page, second paragraph. Vateled ben, she gave birth to a son. Vatahar lo nemar. Oftentimes it says of a woman, Vatahar, she got pregnant. Vatahar vateled ben. Right? Think how many times it said that about Rachel or Leah or the or the um, um, concubines. Vatahar, she got pregnant. Vateled ben doesn't say she got pregnant. Lilamei to teach you, shahaita bechura v'harayon ein nikarba, that um, her pregnancy was a surprise even to her, that somehow we're, we're, we're meant to believe or meant to think according to this very obscure midrash. If you look at the note sixty-seven, psikta zutra, the miniature psikta midrash that something about Sipora's pregnancy was miraculous, that she wasn't even aware she was having a child. So poof, she had a child without her pregnancy. What we're supposed to think about that, I'm really not sure. But it's interesting that um, Chizkuni points that out. Barry, you've waited a long time. Go ahead. Not really waiting. I'm listening to a lot. This is absorbing so much new information. It's kind of blowing me away. Uh, are, are, we, are we saying that Moshe was 80 years old when uh, Gershon was born? We're saying that Sforno is saying that close to it. Yes, that we're supposed to believe that on the precipice of Moshe's going back into Egypt to redeem them, we're almost at year 80, which is to say that the whole p- process of that interaction between Moshe and Pharaoh took place within a year, such that he's 80 when he leaves Egypt and 120 when they're on the precipice of Jordan, which is to say that however old he was when he left Egypt, he's close to 80 now, according to Sforno. So, so I'm getting dizzy on this. Uh, he wasn't that old when he left Egypt. He, 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 was, he, he was a young person. In fact, the, 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 the Hebrews were criticizing him being a young person. Uh, who was he a young person to judge them? And now he's, now he's suddenly 80 years old when he got to Midian? Uh, I don't understand that. Um, um, the only way to understand is to imagine this dwelling with Ruel slash Yitro and getting a wife and having a children did not happen overnight. That he, he lived there. And that strengthens Sforno's read that he's naming his child for his being an extended gare sojourner here, oh, now oh. where he was born. Okay, so th- this this miraculous birth thing, uh, it, it didn't happen like suddenly, uh, like in within a week or a month, come in and eat bread and he had a wife and had a child. Uh, there was uh, some significant number of years uh, be- being invited to share bread and being given a wife and then having a lot of years going Okay. I think what he's Cooney is saying is what I use the word miraculous about is not that it was like an immaculate conception or that it happened overnight, but that she somehow wasn't aware she was about to give birth to us to anyone, let alone a savior. I'm not okay. a savior, but the son of a All son. right. So I, I, I want to go on to the, the, the Ger- Gershon. We're talking about Ger and uh, who's the Ger. Uh, it could be Moshe, but let's talk about uh, Gershon. We don't hear about very much anymore. Um, so when, 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 when Moshe... Let's see. At one point, we're told that he fled with with Zipporah, uh 
uh, to, uh, to to Egypt. He, he, they went back together. Yet uh, later, uh, apparently, they the, the wife and the Gershon were living with um, uh, her father while Moshe was doing what he was doing in Egypt. Uh, we don't know how how they got, got back there because when he Moshe came back with half a million people. Um, he goes and the, the father brings his wife and his children out to him. Um, if, if, um, how, at the time that, that, that Moshe is leaving Midian to go back to Egypt, the, the child Gershon is not a baby. Um, so, uh, and, and along the way, there's, we'll read later, I'm open to this can of worms, we're going to deal with it later. Um, uh, the, the issue with the uh, with the circumcision of, of, of Gershon, he's not a baby. Uh, he, uh, he, he's he's an older person at that time. So I'm I'm this Gershon. Uh, who who is he? Does he know who he is? Uh, is he is he um, the, the the child of of Moshe and the Hebrews uh, and um, and, and Monotheus? Is he a child of a land of, of Polytheus? Uh, who, who is he? So uh, he, he is a he is uh, the, the gear uh, re, may refer to him also. All right, that's why I'm done. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for all of that. All of those layers. Thanks for all those layers. Okay, so I think we're at verse 23 because we've done the, you know, the, the we've done um, we've done verse 22 really completely without Rashi commenting, but others commenting. So let's go to chapter 23. I want you to note a couple of things just in terms of the structure where we are in the story. And, and again, and how divisions themselves are commentaries. So according to the Christian division of the text, um, we have finished a chapter of Torah, of, of Bible. Sorry, reverse. According to the Christian, we're in, still in the middle of the, of the chapter of Bible. We're still in the second chapter of Bible. According to the scroll, if you look at the scroll of the um, Torah, we've got a Parsha break. We've got a, if you were, if you were, if you were laning Torah right now, you would have seen the editor press return, not a tab, but a return and end. It's a petucha. Um, it's open. And then you would start next paragraph. So what we're about to read, according to our, like the, the Jewish instinct is starting a new paragraph and our division doesn't end for a few more verses. Cause if you get to, the um, ch- end of verse chapter 25 that ends in Aliyah. So it's also interesting to see what is being emphasized based on when, where something begins and where it ends. Let's go to verse 23. Carol, do you want to read for us? Cause we haven't heard from you yet today. Oh, okay. You unmuted me. Yeah. I, th- those mute unmute games are always interesting as the host is trying to unmute while the uh, person is trying to unmute and then they cancel each other out. So go ahead and talk about that. <laughs> Um, Okay, a nice chunky verse. Let's translate it slowly. Okay, so and it was in those many days right which is a perfect way of translating those words except that with that translation and i'm with you on it it doesn't tell us what those words mean right in those many days does that refer that many days have passed are we talking about something that happened during those many days it's those are wonderfully simple hebrew words that are extremely complicated in terms of transmitting a sense of what what how much time has passed keep going um the the king uh of Egypt died. Good. Um, and I do not know what Baye Anhu is. Which puts you in great company because uh, the, the, the primary thing that Rashi is going to ask about um, is, is are, are the many words in this verse and in this section that deal with synonyms of cry out, geshrai, complain. We're going to have Anach, Za'ak, Shava, and if you look at the next verse, Na'ak, and is that it? Yeah, in these four verses, we have four roots, Aleph, Nun, Chet, Anach, Zayin, Ayin, Kuf, Za'ak, Shin, Vav, Ayin, Shava, and Na'nun, Aleph, Kuf, um, Na'ak, 
all meaning the version of the same thing. Complain, cry out, appeal, supplicate, right? With different connotations. So an anach might here mean, uh, to, it will, in contact, they anach, the Bnei Israel anacht from the avodah. So what, what would be your best way of filling in the, the gap there? They either, you know, they, they were burdened, they were crying out, groaning, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I'm thinking they were, if it's in order, like they were burdened by it, and then they called out. That's sort of what I'm, what I'm thinking. First it's telling what they're feeling and then what their reaction was. Really know. interesting. So but you're saying Bayin Chuban Israel is expressing their experience. that they, 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 they suffered almost from that work. And therefore, Vayizaku. So right. they cried out. Good. Okay. And um, then And then their their cries or whatever their Shavatam are went went up to God or were heard by God uh, for the, the cries from their labor or from their work. Good. Okay. Um, let's pause there uh, for Carol and any others. Thoughts on the words and the way that we're trying to construct the meaning of that sentence, questions you have on this verse, which, by the way, you can you can see again, Rashi um, is going to say a little bit on this verse, but not but, he, but, we're, but he's not going to get into the question of what some of these verbs mean until the next verse. Thoughts, questions, comments. Kvetch, very good, man. Norm. I have read commentary that suggests that when. The, the old pharaoh died um, between the official and unofficial mourning going on and whatever transition process they had and coronation and so forth. It gave the Israelites the opportunity to cry out relatively unnoticed by the population, mm-hmm. by their taskmasters. Mm-hmm. And so it gave them a chance to express their true feelings. Um, and that's the crying out to God. Wonderful. I'd never heard that because the society was so focused on the king dying and the transition of power. It gave them a chance to actually um, take a break from some of the, te- from, from some of some of the over overburdening burdens. Great. Uh, Leonard, Rebecca, and then Barry. The first few verbs are plural where the children of Israel are crying out. They cried out. Okay. But the, uh, but the final one, Shavatam, their cry it's kind of like they are, all their cries together got unified and there was a single cry from the children and that then went up to God. Lovely. What a beautiful close reading. Everyone see that? Shavatam means their plural cry singular, the single cry of them, even though it was they who had been anaching and za'aking. And uh, interesting in the next verse, it's also going to be na'akatam, Rebecca, not na'akotehem, right? So the, 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 their blank, their cry, their, their complaint is, is, is singularized. I'm trying to see if Uncleus keeps that going in the Aramaic. Um, yeah, he does. That the two verbs are plural, but the noun form is singular. The plural part is the them part. Very good. Uh, Barry? So I, I, yeah, I want to build up on, on uh, what Rebecca was just doing there. I would focus on the tal. Can someone help me understand? Is that a singular or a plural? Which one, Barry? Vata'al. Vata'al, good. So the, the vata'al, if we break down that verb, we have, to, we have to break it down in several parts. The root is aleph lamed hey, ole. The real form is vita'ale. And it went, hmm. the, the, the word is actually, um, very hard to do this. Um, uh, um, alta. It feminine went up would be it, she, alta, went up. But because it's vav hahipuch, it goes from a past tense looking verb to a future tense looking verb, even though it still means past tense. So it would have been vitaale. Last piece you have to beat in is that uh, roots that end in a hey in the vav hahipuch the hay often drops off. So it would have been vita'alet, but it went to vata'al, like vayevk. And he cried is really vayevke, but since the root is bet, kaf, hay, in the vav hayipuch, the hay falls out. So it, the word really is alta, turned into vita'alet and vav hayipuch, shortened to vata'al, and it is singular. It's feminine singular, because the shav'ah 
the cry is a feminine noun. Ah, oh, that's a feminine. Oh, okay. So uh, I'm working with that. This is a, a singular, singular uh, event. Uh, the many, the many become singular, and it's feminine. And I, I'm asking myself, well, how? What's the what's the means by which it goes up? How how did it go up? So what's behind the feminine of this? I, I'm seeing Shekinah in here, that that brought took took the cry up. Right. One of the delightful things about you, Barry, is that you see Shekinah everywhere, which is so lovely. In this particular moment, the, the sometimes cigars just being cigars. The thing that's feminine is it's just a feminine noun. Shava is a feminine is a, or, or a, 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 the, the feminine noun from the verb lishavea to cry out is feminine. But I will never dissuade you from seeing the shechina in things. Well, because that's what I, I'm just asking it. myself what what's the means by which it went up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who 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 took it up? How how was it taken up? Yeah. It looks like it just rose and it rose to God. Uh, Leonard Rebecca. So we were just talking about all those verbs that didn't have subjects uh, clearly identified or identified at all. Yeah. And uh, Nahama Leibowitz points out that this verse to the end of the chapter, so the ne- this verse and the next couple verses over there, uh, the first one, it's to God. And then in every subsequent verse, it's God is the subject and God's name is repeated each time. Mm is definitely not normal Hebrew. And in fact, in the translations, even in the Vulgate and the Septuagint, they put pronouns there instead. And he did this and he did that rather than just repeating the name of God over and over again. But yet we have this abnormal thing here where previously we didn't have any subjects at all. Now we have the subject appearing every single verse, even though it's not required, so to speak. The great contrast for those who don't know, let her just uh, describe what the Vulgate and the Septuagint are. Well, the Septuagint was the translation of the Torah into uh, Greek. Supposedly, 70 scholars in Alexandria sat down in a closed room, and they were in isolation. <laughs> they were in quarantine, and they all came up with exactly the same words in Greek for the thing. So that's like the one of the first translations of the Bible. And uh, the Vulgate is the first translation into Latin. Right. And they're useful in the same way that Unculus is useful. It doesn't mean that they were correct, but it gives us a window into what the speakers of that language then thought of the text. Uh, Everett Fox translates this verb in the following way, reading a little bit differently than Carol does, which is fine. It was, comma, many years later. So what he what what it, 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 he does something very interesting with the Vayahi Bayamim Rabim Hahem. He he takes out the the bet, which suggests a, an in or during. Just and it was by he comma, and he turns by amim harubimahem not as during those many days, but many days later, and that's an that's a, a choice. It doesn't have to mean that. The king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned from the servitude. So he reads the vaya and who is not their only their experience, but actually our being told what they did. They groaned, and they cried out. That's the vayizaku. And, the, and there, he hyphenates this, plea for help. Their shava, their plea for help, went up to God, comma, from the servitude. I want to also point out something just nerdily grammatical about Vayizaku as a Torah reader. And a, too bad Rick isn't, I don't think Rick is here today. Is he here? Um, that the verb is really Vayizaku with a stress on the last syllable. But because we're in a laning mode, when you have, and it's in a pausal form, like we've seen lechem turn to lachem, eretz turn to aretz, it's not only the segolate nouns, the eh nouns that turn into a-eh, sometimes where what syllable, haha, a verb is stressed on is impacted by where the word appears in the verse. And had this word vayizaku been in any other place in the verse, except for vietnachta, the pause, the comma, or the sof pasuk in the verse, it would have just been vayizaku, and you would have translated it with a stress on the vayizaku, but because it's on the ednachta, you have to pause there, it's read as vayizaku. So it would be lamed, vayamim harabim haheim, vayamot melech mitzrayim, vayayanachu v'nei Yisrael min havodah vayizaku. And a good laner will make sure that the stress on the izaku, because that's where the ednachta is. 
Let's end there. Let's end on the notion of crying out, um, which might be apt for the week and month we're about to live through. Let's uh, thank one another for uh, the camaraderie and the Torah study and the opening of, of apertures and pores to interesting ideas. And I hope you have a safe uh, and wonderful day. And we'll see where this goes, everybody. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.